I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking and engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. The following episode is a special edition of our current series, Always Faithful, where I discuss my experience as a Black infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps. After releasing Always Faithful Part 1, I found myself struggling to record Part 2. In order to give me more time to articulate my thoughts, I decided to interview retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Hobbs, author of the controversial Marine Corps Time article, The Marine Corps, Always Faithful to White Man. We discussed the origins of the article and its initial reception, as well as reflect on my own experience in the Marines. We wrap things up by offering solutions to how the Marine Corps can improve the retention and success rate of officers of color in combat arms. As always, thank you for sharing your time with me. And I hope you enjoy the show. You start a business with him. You make commitments to him. We all can profit and win and reinvest with our friends. And circle back to the hood and teach them youngsters to do it. Do it. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another edition of my show. It's a Friday afternoon podcasting from my one-bedroom apartment in Newark, New Jersey, a.k.a. Ironbound HQ. And I'm super excited today because we have a very special guest Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Hobbs, United States Marine Corps. What's going on, sir? Hey, how are you, Mike? I really appreciate you having on the, me on the show. Nah, I, pre- I appreciate you coming on board. Uh, for everyone out there, first of all, I just want to say thank you for all the love and support regarding um, episode part one of the Always Faithful series, where I talk about my experience as a black officer uh, in the Marine Corps and some of the challenges and stuff I faced. You know, um, it was very interesting for me and very humbling for me to come on this platform and basically, you know, share my history and, you know, some insecurities uh, stuff I had, some insecurities I felt about leadership in my time in the Marine Corps and just basically get naked on the platform and open up to all of you out there. But the reception has been just absolutely amazing from uh, black officers, white officers. I mean, just Marines in general. I've had officers, I've had enlisted reach out to me and just really um, thanking me for articulating my experience in such a empathetic way and even just the ties to leadership because I think there's a lot of people that out there that feel uncertain about leadership particularly military people once they leave and uh, it was really enlightening to have like an enlisted marine reach out to me who just felt like he's been struggling with some leadership stuff and then how inspiring it was to hear me you know get on there and, and talk about this stuff because you know I do think from the officer and enlisted perspective there's this gap between us and so a lot of times they don't get to see us very, um, especially in the Marine Corps, right? They really right. don't get to see us so vulnerable. And I think pre- people just appreciate the vulnerability. And so I just thank you all for receiving that and uh, allowing me to, to share my story. Um, let's go ahead and introduce Colonel Hobbs on here. I'm really excited to, to have him on here because to be quite frank, his article that he published in the Marine Corps Times was what led me to do you know, part one of the Always Faithful series. And uh, I just want him to get on here and give a quick introduction about himself. I'll have him give a confession and then we can get into the meat of the episode. So, Colonel Hobbs, welcome on the show. Thanks a lot, Mike. And uh, first, I want to congratulate you on getting your master's. I want to say that on the podcast. I know we talked about it before, but that's just amazing what you did. I also want to congratulate you for having so much courage 
on doing the, the podcast, the first episode of Always Faithful, man, that took took a lot of uh, just a lot of courage to be able to talk the way you did. So, uh, you know, you, you talk a little bit about feeling like a fraud when people talk, mention your success now, but you're not a fraud at all. And uh, now that you laid it all out there, I think people will see that. So I think that self-doubt you may have, you can kill that thing. Um, and I'm just really proud of you for all your success, for having survived the Marine Corps. You know, you told me that the, that was a, actually the verb that describes your experience. Wasn't living or, or experience the Marine Corps, it was surviving the Marine Corps. So I, I really, uh, I'm really proud of you for that too. So just a little about me, I'm an infantry officer, I was one. I retired in October of 2018. Um, you know, I made it to Colonel, but I never did get command as a Colonel. Um, you know, I went through TBS in 1991. And, uh, you know, my big confession is that I would say for all my teenage years, my college years, and pretty much my entire Marine Corps career, I have uh, resisted my Asian part of my heritage, I'm half Japanese, to fit in with Marine Corps culture, which means to fit in with white culture, right? So in high school, I never wanted to have Asian friends. I never wanted to have an Asian girlfriend. Um, in college, same thing. And in the Marine Corps, I, I, resi- I, I had compromised on doing the right thing to fit in. We could talk about some examples of that. Um, but then, I, then I'd like to share some stories about uh, just race things that have occurred over my career and recently, because the most frustrating thing I get when I talk to other white people Many of them, my friends, some of them are three and four star generals. It's always the same thing back that the Marine Corps has changed, that the Marine Corps has done everything it could to make things equal. You know, that these racist stories I have are old, but that's not true because a lot of those people are still in today. Um, and, the, and the same kind of incidents like you describe are occurring right now. So maybe we can talk about some of those things, I guess. Absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing that too, because, you know, I think a lot of times people don't understand the effects of systematic institutional racism on the people, uh, on minority groups like us, people of color, and not just in terms of like what's happening to us, but also what we're doing to each other, right? Other minorities as well, you know, because we feel so trapped in these environments and what ends up happening is we start to mimic a lot of the same stuff that was done to us, to our own people, right? Where you talk about trying to distance yourself uh, from your Asian heritage and just trying to fit in and conform it into society. And there's a lot that goes into that because we're in these environments where there's not many of us. No one is cultivating that spirit. No one is cultivating that like cultural responsibility. It's more of just like assimilate, abandon all that kind of stuff and come on board and join us. And so it's very important to kind of talk about that. And there's a uh, one of my favorite plays is a play called A Soldier's Play by Charles Fuller, where it basically tells a story of this group of, of black soldiers during World War II and what institutional and systematic racism caused them to do each other, essentially where they try to cancel each other out, resulting in the death of two soldiers, um, which is very sad, but it just kind of shows this, this, this other side of these environments. And so, yeah. you know, piggybacking off what you said, you know, my confession for this week is, you heard me on the last episode kind of talk about my experiences as a struggling uh, black second lieutenant. I will confess that I failed to help a fellow African-American Naval Academy graduate, boxer and infantry officer like I should have because of my own shortcomings and insecurities. All right. So I have a very close friend of mine. I mean, groomsman level friend, best bud, have grown up together since going to the Naval Academy. We box together. 
We served in the Marines together. He's my roommate. I mean, frat brother, you know, all these different things. And I will tell you, he graduated the academy ahead of me, a year ahead of me. And he was getting rolled at TBS. He got rolled three times. So I actually passed him um, when I checked in, ended up going to, uh, you know, Camp Lejeune. And he came there after me. So when I ended up getting back to my unit, you know, I had all this stigma from all the challenges and stuff I faced. And then here he comes in with his stuff. Right. And so instead of like really leaning on them and being there to kind of support him and say, hey, let's tackle this thing together. It was more a sense of I found myself trying to, you know, distance myself a little bit from him as well. And I'll tell you, he's the same person he is today as he was back then. You know, it's like the best human being, like one of the best human beings I know. And I just realized doing some self-awareness that I could have done so much more to support him during that time and let him know, hey, brother, I got your back, you know, instead of just trying to take this thing uh, on by myself. And we've talked about this with other officers, you know, um, I checked back in the 1-8. There were five black officers by the time I got back. So I don't know what happened with headquarters Marine Corps. If they were just like, hey, we had this situation. We need to put some color down there. But I'll tell you, for all of us black infantry officers, four of us were infantry officers. One was an intel officer, but he went through IOC. But it's not like we were breaking bread together. It's not like we were supporting each other. It's not like we were pulling each other in and just saying like, hey, let's, let's, let's talk about some of these issues. These environments put us at odds against each other. And it's not in some like overt of like, oh, I'm just avoiding this personality altogether. But we're in these environments. It's like, hey, why are all the black dudes sitting together? You know, you ever had that table? Why do they isolate themselves from everyone else? Right. There's this stigma. And then the Marine Corps, there's the whole fraternization piece, you know. Um, And so basically you've got this group of black infantry officers and we can't even break bread and stand each other up and lift each other up because of the environment and the culture of the Marine Corps. And so to my fellow Marine, my fellow brother who, you know, don't get me wrong. He was my roommate. I loved him, but I could have done so much more to support him because I'll be honest, when he was having his issues, I shied away from standing him up and defending him against others like I should have. And I want you to know, brother, I apologize for that. You're one of my closest friends and let's continue building and growing together and changing the world. Yeah. I've done the same thing. I'm so ashamed of it now. And I can't believe it's taken me, uh, to be age 51, you know, and having already finished my Marine Corps career for me to be really be honest and, and recognize it. At the same time, you know, I've judged other uh, African-American officer peers of mine, you know, who've made it to the top. And I, I feel like they uh, don't stand up for other African-Americans. And I feel like they've conformed and I've judged them. At the same time, I've been doing it myself and didn't really understand that I was doing it too. So it was so hypocritical of me. I also, I also want to make it clear, like, I'm not, this is not a, a hate white people session. Right. I'm married to a white woman. Maybe I married a white woman because I was resisting my heritage, but regardless, I love her, right? She's my best friend. Um, my dad's white. So it's not about beating up on white people at all. Um, and and the, this thing about culture and adjusting to culture, one of the, uh, an African-American colonel retired, uh, wrote uh, in reply to my original article on LinkedIn, and he talked about you know, why, why are you, why are you uh, espousing, um, teaching uh, African-Americans or any, any outside culture to adjust to the Marine Corps culture, white culture, really the Marine Corps culture, specifically about language when I talked about that, you know, he's saying Marine Corps culture should accept all cultures. And he's right. He's right. We're, why can't the Marine Corps accept all cultures and us and, and particularly African-Americans? And your story about how, how uh, black Marines are, 
so different at a table by themselves and they're so different than when they're sitting with white people. It's just crazy that uh, absolutely white culture is a culture and we've all made these sacrifices to try to adjust and it tears you up later. And I think it's important for people to know, understand, we're, we're talking about the Marine Corps right now because this is an elite institution. We're very proud of our service and, and what we've done. But the issues we're talking about are bigger than just the Marine Corps. You know, this is found in any elite place where you walk in and you don't see too many people of color. Right. Yeah. That says a lot about that culture, um, yeah. whether they want to admit it or not, just in terms of like what does the success look like there and you know, who really fits in and, and who thrives. And so yep. when you think about the Marine Corps and the kind of personalities that go there, right? Yep. This is going to be the same personalities at uh, the McKinsey's and yep. the professional forums and corporate America and all that kind of stuff. So even though we're coming kind of hard at like the military, please believe that there, this is an issue across the board. And I am working on explaining it in my own way, this sense of inferiority towards uh, people of color and their cultures. And now I'll also let you say, you know, when we say black people on this show, for me, native son is African-American, African-American, native born, you know, descended from slavery, right? Went through all that kind of crap from, um, you know, being brought over here and all that kind of stuff. Um, Civil rights, Jim Crow. Those are the, that's the heritage we're speaking to. And I think a lot of times to, you know, in order to boost um, acceptance rates or the image of inclusivity, we're having a lot of other groups kind of get plugged into black to where people don't even know what black really means anymore. And so when you hear us talking about black people, when you hear us talking about African-Americans, that's what we're talking about. Like African-Americans born in this country, you know, in this country that descended from those that fought in the civil, um, not civil war, civil war, world war one, world war two, and got treated bad, got treated dog, didn't have access to the same rights as their fellow citizens, right? But they have this legacy and their family members and their kins, right? Right now they are trying to to do right in the military, okay? And that's who who we're speaking to, I believe, when we talk about, you know, black people and African-Americans. Am I wrong, sir? uh, No, you're not wrong, but I would say um, given enough time, any person of color, Mm -hmm. particularly black, will feel the same microaggressions, overt aggressions, and systemic bias um, that that descendants of slaves would, right? Yeah. And they've done studies about, let's say, a Nigerian, a female woman who has, ba- you know, the birth rate in Nigeria is fine. They don't have all the issues that they have in the United States in terms of uh, difficulty with labor and mortality rates, right? Um, but then when those Nigerian women come over to the United States, guess what happens given a few years? Their mortality, their birth problems and mortality rates go up to equal those of uh, African-Americans who've been here for generations. So I think isolating them and their experience, maybe the first few months or years, yeah, I could see that they would have a different perspective, but over time, they will feel the same kind of pressures that that people like you have. They will have have generations of history in the States, I believe. Absolutely, no, that's fair. But I just, you know, I want our audience out there to know that race is a very complicated, we don't talk about, we don't have these discussions, but there's so much to pack there. You know, yeah. even amongst African-Americans, right? You have foreign, foreign-born, African, foreign-born Blacks that don't like American citizens, yeah. right? So That's there's right. all kind of, there's different shades of color, right? And there's yeah. deep, we're going to explore it in future episodes. But for this episode, I just thought I would share my opinion. Appreciate you sharing your opinion, Carl Hobbs. And let's uh, keep going. So yeah. what I'm going to do before we jump into the meat of this episode, 
Um, I'm going to go ahead and give a shout out to our sponsors. First, I want to give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Next, I want to give a shout out to my brand, the one and only Ironbound Boxing, a fitness brand that utilizes the wellness benefits of boxing to transform communities, individuals, and corporate teams, helping them realize their fullest potential. Proceeds from our services fund free amateur boxing programs for inner city youth and young adults. Boom. Shout out to Dope Coffee, Ironbound Boxing, two badass brands, both run by the ad by Marine Corps combat veterans, Mike Lloyd from Dope Coffee and yours truly. So like our super fans out there are sipping some dope coffee, rocking an Ironbound hoodie, listening to this podcast on their way to work to kick some ass or then take some names. All right. So, uh, yeah, be sure to check those. Check us out. Now, let's get into the theme of today's show. And to be honest, this is just a special edition, okay? I'd released the last episode of Always Faithful Part 1, and as I was trying to do Part 2, this this subject material is so hard for me that I've struggled doing the episode, and I I tried to record it like three times, okay? So, you know what I said? I said, you know, let's improvise, adapt, and overcome. Let's get Colonel Hobbs on here to come and help me out a little bit, plug in some special edition stuff in there. What really we're going to do is I want him to speak on the article that he wrote in the Marine Corps Times and then get his initial reflections on episode one. And then we're going to talk about some solutions because a lot of people hit me up about that. They love how I confess and talk about stuff. But I do think there are people out there that really are curious about who, you know, people like us think are good solutions moving forward, particularly your idea about the prep school that we're going to get into. All right, so um, let's go ahead and get started. Sir, tell us about the article. Go ahead and give us a quick introduction to the article and its origins. So uh, I just want to say, had I had I come to this realization that caused me to write the article while I was on active duty, I would have published it on active duty. It had nothing to do with me being retired, but it had everything to do with the current political environment, right? So although I intellectually understood how African-Americans and other people of color have suffered in the U.S., um, due to just institutional bias and overt racism. I knew that intellectually. I did not feel it viscerally in my gut, in my heart, until the El Paso shootings, right? So that white crazy guy goes down to Texas and just tries to kill uh, brown people in Walmart. And he, and he was uh, inspired by Trump's words. So for the first time in my life, I felt physically threatened and unsafe just because of the color of my skin. Now, I knew that happened to black people, and I knew all the stats, you know, I've seen the stats and news reports about young black men just getting killed because of their color of their skin and hadn't done anything wrong by cops and, and other people, just like what happened to uh, Ahmaud Aubrey down in Georgia. But I didn't feel it, right? So once I felt it, then I started talking to some of my white friends who had voted for Trump saying, dude, doesn't it bother you, the things that he says and the things that he's caused? And we get into a debate about race and yada, 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 all the same stuff about, um, you know, things have improved and things are better now. But at the end of the conversation, they were able to return to work as if nothing has happened. Yet at the end of the conversation for me, I was still worried about life and death and, and the safety of my family. So that's what caused me to, to write the article and talk about how my white friends who are not racist themselves personally, because they had me as a friend, for example, and they all, as they like to point out, they have black friends. So the, how can they be racist? But their, their non-racist stance allows for racist uh, structural systems to continue. 
So Ibram uh, X. Kendi uh, wrote, wrote a book on, it is called How to Be an Anti-Racist, right? And he talks about the difference between being a non-racist and an anti-racist. And so I decided to talk about being an anti-racist because that's what I feel I've become is an anti-racist now, not just a non-racist like I've been. So an anti-racist then uh, does not allow racism to occur uh, like a non-racist does. A non-racist just stands by and lets things happen unless the status quo continue. And the status quo will benefit those in power right now. And those who have the power right now are white culture, is white culture, right? So the status quo does not benefit um, those who are not in power. So anti-racists will fight against the status quo. So I, as a result of that article, I've lost, uh, no, I'm still friends, but we're not close with some of my white friends because they realize I've drawn a line in the sand and said, you're either an anti-racist or a non-racist. And if you're a non-racist, you're allowing racist policy to continue. Therefore, you know, you're on the other side of the line from me. So I've definitely lost some white friends, but that's okay because I've gained uh, the trust of a lot of people of color and women. And they've told me stories that they would have never told me had I not de publicly declared where I stand. Even, even um, there's colonels that are in now, African-American colonels, they've been my uh, XO, for instance, when I was a company commander. We've been close all these years and we've stayed in touch, but he did not talk to me, really, really talk to me about race until I published that article. So until, uh, People take a stand publicly on where, where, where they view race. They're not gonna hear the stories from their black friends or from their black Marines. They're never gonna really get it. So I, I think it's gonna take individuals uh, speaking up on where they stand to actually start hearing stories and develop real empathy. For instance, and I'll shut up and let you talk, but is uh, the Commandant's latest letter on the banning of Confederate memorabilia, right? So his focus was on uh, preventing um, the divisiveness that occurs by flying the Confederate flag or having a bumper sticker on your car or whatever, right? So he's looking at the unity of the Marine Corps and because that symbol is divisive, please put the symbol away. I don't want it in the Marine Corps anymore. So that's fine. A lot of my black friends have said, hey, it's a step, you know, one step at a time. But I say, no, it's 2020. And especially as of late, the Confederate flag is directly tied to white supremacists. It's they fly it right next to Nazi symbols. And I don't understand why saying Nazi flags are, if we can say Nazis are bad, and we can all agree with that, why can't we say that about Confederate flags? Because Confederacy, that Confederate flag was brought back after the war, right? All the different Confederate states had different flags. It was a symbol specifically brought back during the Jim Crow era to stand for white supremacy. So why, why, is, why can't the Commandant say it is wrong to fly that flag? because that flag symbolizes oppression. And right now, that flag, especially right now, is being used to, to unsupport of white supremacists. So why, why did he have to ride the line, right? So that, therefore, the commandant's never gonna hear real stories from his African-American Marines because he hasn't picked a side. He's validated both sides by saying, I understand that the Confederate flag has her, you know, meaning for you, it has a lot of heritage, but to me, that's like saying, there's, there's good people on both sides, what Trump said after Charlottesville, right? So leaders take a stand on an ethical code. They don't stick, stick to the middle. So what's right and what's wrong? A leader should pick what's right or what's wrong and say it publicly. So I think we've uh, missed a mark on that right now. Yeah, I'm going to do a whole episode on the Confederate flag, especially being in the military, because I've always found that offensive, just yes. to be quite frank. It's always bothered me. And even you know, being at the Naval Academy and visiting places like West Point and Virginia Military and all these different places, 
You know, they really do idolize these Confederate generals and they're taught, you know, and I just think as a man of color, black man, quite frank, from the South, I've always found that extremely offensive. But it's like, you know, as I get older and more self-aware, I will say like, you know, I think a lot of this stuff, this racism, this institutional racism, we as people of color enable it because sometimes we keep going to these places and making them think it's okay. You know, I think a bigger issue is like, yo, when you are not able to enlist black Marines or black Marine officers, and then you ask them why, you know, and it's because the culture is bad. And they say, or the culture is, is not really as accepting of us as we would like. And I think that would shut a lot of that stuff down. And again, this is a whole separate conversation, but you know, um, it is worth, definitely worth bringing up. One thing I want to say is from a purely leadership point of view, right? So if, if, if the Marine Corps really lived its own leadership philosophy, right? So it talks about command and control in Marine Corps doc, doctoral publication number six. And there, you know, command, everybody understands what the command is. It's your authority to direct people to do things legally, right? But people all misconstrue what control is. And almost everybody says control is forcing somebody to do something. Right. But force only lasts as long as you apply it, right? So real leaders know how to inspire and convince and make people want to do things on their own, right? Not, not force people to do things. Well, how do you do that? Well, the, our own doctoral publication talks about feedback. So the more feedback loops you get from multiple places, not just from your staff meeting, not just from commander talks, but from the body language of individual Marines that pass you by or how they answer you, and you start picking at it because it sounds weird, it just bothers you. But that, that's how you start to get real feedback and see the real picture, right? So that means you want to be as inclusive as possible, right? So the very fact that you'd come into work and I, I do this, I, I don't have any bumper stickers on my car because anything, any type of bumper sticker is going to exclude somebody, right? So if I have a Go Hillary bumper sticker, I've excluded all my country boys from the white South. If I have a, if I have a Confederate flag sticker on my car, I've just excluded all my black Marines. So I, even with music, I don't put kind of mu- what kind of music I like down until I've developed 100% trust on a personal level with my unit. Then I'll start talking if they ask where I lean on politics or where I lean on music. But until then, I got to earn their trust. So the fact that people come in blind, not knowing anybody in their uni yet, and already displaying a Confederate flag or a Black Power flag, you've already excluded, you know, half of your unit. So from a leadership standpoint, it's stupid. It doesn't make sense. And it doesn't work with our own doctrine and our own philosophy. So for I don't understand why the Marine Corps doesn't smash it just from that perspective alone. Not, yeah. Nothing to do with race. Just being inclusive. No, that is very true. Because you don't want to, you don't have time coming to Just don't be an asshole. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, as a civilian, I have my different views on morality and sexuality and all these different things. Yep. But I don't walk around being an asshole. You know, yep. I always want people to feel inclusive and, and safe and whatever. And so a lot of my views have changed just being a civilian. You know, it's growth. Um, yep. And again, it's just being a good person, right? Just because you can doesn't yep. mean you should. And I think that's what you're, you're getting at. Now, we have a lot of people on here that may or may not have read your article. And the net title of the article is uh, <laughs> the Marine Corps always faithful to white men. Can you give them a quick overview of the article? I know we talked about its origins and what led you to write it, but specifically what you were addressing in the article with regards to the basic school officers and, you know, the culture that the Marine Corps uh, refuses to accept it has. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, one thing, even for my, I have very, very close, one of my best white friends, uh, he, he says, he never, you know, I don't need a role model. I, I do what I want to do. And, and I believe he, he, he's sincere when he says that. 
also heard it in, uh, there's a rebuttal from my army colonel, retired PhD guy, who wrote a rebuttal in the Army Times to my article. And he talks about how not having any photographs of commanders of color or commanders who are female, you know, that should motivate you to want to be the person, the first person up there. But that's such a privileged, uh, fucking pisses me off. From, from such a privileged, uh, white, white privileged point of view for him to say that or for my friend maybe him to think that, right? Because they never had to worry about role models because there always was one. So imagine if they, if a white person went into a all black church and wanted to be a leader of that church or went to historically, let's go Howard University. And, and, and now he's the only white professor there or, or a white student there. Does he feel, would that person feel like they have a chance in that organization looking nothing like the establishment? I think they wouldn't, but because white culture is predominant in everything, like you said, not just the military, um, most white people never even have to think about it. So in, in, in the article, I try to try to give an example, and I, I don't address overt racism. I'd love to talk about that because we have incidents we should discuss, but I address uh, structural uh, racism built in policy, right? So those racist policies were probably put in place by racist people in a racist government during times of overt racism. But over the years, there's been less overt racism, um, but those policies still exist, and the people executing those policies don't even know what, what they're doing. They have no idea the impact. So I try to give an example of structural or uh, racist policy in my article using um, the selection, the, the military occupational specialty assignment of officers at the basic school, right? So in it, I discuss how the basic school uh, will divide the class into top, middle, and bottom third. I was a top of the bottom third guy, and I wanted to be a grunt, so I happened to get a grunt. I'm sure the Rico was happy because I was a person of color. But anyway, top, middle, and bottom third. What, the reason why they do that is they want to make sure that every community in the, in the Marine Corps, whether it be logistics, communications, or ground combat arms, or, or aviation, gets their share of the top, and the middle, and the bottom third, right? So that's why they divide it that way. So then I'd watch, uh, and as a TBS instructor myself, I did four platoons, which I believe is still, um, no one's beaten that, but four platoons back to back because I loved having my own platoon for six months. And I turned down IOC to be able to continue being a platoon commander. So I watched this process uh, four times. And, and then watching the process, I would notice how it exalted students would line up from one to 300 or one to 250, whatever the number was. And you'd, you'd see the top third people come in maybe one or two people of color, one or two females, then the bottom or the middle third, you know, a little more diversity. And then in the bottom third, the diversity's flipped where it's less white people and a lot, a lot of color and a lot of uh, uh, women. And a lot of the people of color did not want to go into com ground combat arms, you know, and I'd ask some of my, my old students, why, why don't you want to go into ground combat arms? They go, well, you don't understand what it's like to be an African-American the way you define it, Mike. And, and my parents, they'd say my parents, you know, they went through the civil rights area. They saw what uh, soldiers did to them, right? And beaten. They saw what the establishment authority did during the civil rights movement, billy clubbing and gassing and, st and stomping on civil rights marchers that the military was used to in that manner. Um, so they why would you want to go join that? And then, of course, you have the perspective of Muhammad Ali saying, why should I go fight in Vietnam against the yellow man? For, a, for the white government here in the United States when they've done nothing for us. And so he takes the stand to go to prison instead, right? Yet a lot of white people consider him a traitor. 
when we look at George Bush II, the second president, did he go to Vietnam? Nope. His daddy got him hooked up with the National Guard, so he didn't have to go fight. Did Clinton? Nope. He went, kept going uh, to college over and over again, getting his master's and deferring his, his time in Vietnam. And same with, uh, same with Trump, right? So it's not just a Republican-Democrat thing. It's a class thing in terms of who went to the war. So a lot of African-American students, Marines that I work with, told me that just it's in their heritage to not want to go be part of this establishment that has beat them down for so long. And instead, they would use this opportunity to get some kind of skill, a marketable skill that they could use when they get out. And it makes complete sense to me, right? So because of that, though, uh, in the bottom third, there was pushback from headquarters Marine Corps, in my experience, um, to, to make black officers in particular be ground combat arms. And like I said, most of them didn't want to do it. So now you take a, a, a young Marine who is in the bottom third for a reason, right? He's struggling at school. We could talk about those struggles, but he's struggling at school. And then we're going to put him into the toughest MOS, infantry. I think it's the most difficult skill there is out there. And then we're going to throw him into IOC, which is the hardest school that the Marine Corps has, or one of the hardest. And then we're going to wonder why they don't do well, right? Uh, when I was a student at IOC myself, we had one black officer, and he was, he was fucked up. He was terrible as an infantry officer, right? And, and then I started, and then I learned about the quota system as an SPC myself. And what do you think I thought every time I met a black officer in infantry after that? I wonder yes. if he's a quota. I wonder yeah. if he's a quota, right? It's fucking terrible. Um, so then we wonder why they, they're, and then, and then we wonder why these the, uh, Marines of color get out before they're uh, field grade officers, right? And there's no generals because of it. So how do we fix that? Well, first, what's the causes? So I, I, thought, I thought the causes of their bottom performance was based on their uh, socioeconomic background in a lot of cases, right? So I, I grew up, my father's white, he was foreign service, so I grew up an upper middle class white family. So therefore, I lived a white life. I had a country club we went to that I could swim in every summer. Um, I got to shoot guns. Um, and I was in Boy Scouts, not Boy Scouts, I got kicked out of Weeblos, but I was in Weeblos. And I used to have my, well, my white friends, we'd go out to uh, the woods a lot. And so the woods were comfortable, comfortable for me, right? And I, I could speak the white language because that's what we use at home. And that's what my father used. So then you take a kid that's from, let's say, Detroit. How many opportunities does that kid from inner city Detroit get to go shoot guns properly, right? And be able to apply sight alignment, trigger control and all that shit. Nothing. How many times does that kid like that get to join the Boy Scouts and go out to the woods? Nothing. How about how many times does he get to go relax in a country club pool? Right? Nothing. But the first big three events at the basic school are land nav, shooting, and swimming. Right? Now, just the, your story talks about it, but the first big three events is so public and, and, you, and it, it's just, it's shameful, right? When you can't succeed. And so now you're in remedial swim call. Oh, guess what? Everybody around you looks like your color. And you're already starting to be different from the culture. You're already standing out in a negative way. Now you're doing remedial land navigation too. And maybe you go on kind of rifle range or you get your pizza boxes or lowest qualification. So you're the first three major events, you're already bottomed out. You're in the bottom. Meanwhile, all the remediation you have to do is taking your time and effort and focus away from the other topics that we also have to do at the basic school, right? So now you're falling behind in everything. 
And it's just, and that pace is so fast there, you can't dig out of a hole once you're in a hole, right? So now you end up in the bottom third. Your lineal number amongst your peers is set for your career. Your, your reputation amongst your peers is set now pretty much. It's very hard to break that reputation once it's established. And then you go off and do an MOS that you fucking hate, right? Why the hell would you stay in the Marine Corps after that? And so I've heard from a lot of people, suck it up. Every, no one gets the MOS they want. You just suck it up. But that's, you know what? That's not true. We should be better at human talent management. Why not put people in MOS they want, right? Okay, well, if we do that, then we will have skewed numbers unless we change the performance and make the le- playing field level. So if we don't do that, the majority of combat arms will be white and the majority of supporting arms would be black if I'm, if I'm making huge generalizations. But that's what would happen. So yes, we do want a quality spread. But we, want to, we don't want to do it in a way where we force people into something they don't want to do. So all I'm saying is, why can't we fix the structural bias that leads to this racist policy and racist outcomes when we only have white generals that are male? Why can't we just level the playing field before people arrive? So I'd say I could, get this, I could run a course in two weeks and have statistics jump up, jump up uh, in performance. I guarantee it. But... If we just let people, anybody of color, anybody of who's white, anybody of male or female, whoever is unfamiliar with a, a topic like that, just get familiar, get comfortable in the water, get comfortable with the shooting a gun, get comfortable in the woods. That's it. I'm not saying we make them pass the events and and basically learn it before everybody else. I'm just saying familiarize them. That will only take a few weeks. Then, uh, then they start TBS more on an equal footing, I think. And then you'll see that because they are now more confident and are actually hitting their stride and they're not digging out of a hole and they're actually doing well at TBS, I think more people would want to be in combat arms and be infantry instead of being uh, shying away from it because now they've done well in something like in those areas, if that makes sense. So my, my, my recommendation, so I used uh, the TBS uh, MOS assignment as a vehicle to, to describe structural institutional racism or racist policy and then the outcomes of it, and then how we can truly do affirmative action. It's not by quotas and making people do something they don't want. It's by leveling the playing field up front and being aware of the racist impacts of the policy we have. And that was the purpose of the paper. Okay, and I just want people to realize a couple of things. Number one, I it's been it's taken me, ten, I'm 10 years removed from the situations I described in the last podcast. Got my master's in American studies, undergrad in history, right? I'm able to articulate my thoughts, feelings, and emotions in a way now that I was unable to do so as a young black second lieutenant, okay? Right. Now, we also have Colonel Hobbs here who has over, what, 20 years in the Marine Corps? In 27. 27. In the infantry. These are minority infantry officers who've been in the cut, right? So, again, we're talking about stuff. We're not talking out our asses here. We're talking about stuff we know about. And one thing I've kind of understood when I kind of think about like a lot of these issues, see, I'm not going to talk myself down. I'm going to say I'm a pretty smart person. Okay. A lot of the stuff, the prep school, I knew about, I thought that was a great idea. Like right after stuff started happening, you know what I'm saying? And I can't help but think in my head, wait, you've got these colonels, you've got these generals at the highest level, go to freaking Harvard public policy schools, all this different stuff. Right. You're telling me they can't get qualified minority candidates through these programs. 
you know? And so it kind of begged to me to ask is like, do they really want to? And the reason I say that is I've met colonels that went through IOC in like the 1980s. How many black officers in your class? Two. 2015, how many black officers in your class? Two. 2020, how many black officers in your class? Two. And I just can't help but scratch my head. It's like, is this really something that you want to get, you know, addressed? And everybody's like, oh, the standard, the standard. We don't lower the standard. No, what we're talking about is like at the highest level, who is sitting in that room saying these are the qualifications for a black Marine officer, right? These are what we think they need to know. Because I'll tell you, I know at the Naval Academy, Marines were looking for the athletes. You know, are you in shape? Blah, blah, blah. They're not asking, hey, man, do you like fishing? Do you like hunting? When was the last time you shoot? Do you shoot for fun? Do you own any guns? Have you ever broken a gun down? Have you gone backpacking? What would you like to go backpack for two weeks? These are the kind of questions that would help me better understand if someone is a good fit for the Marine Corps. And here's another reason why we're so passionate about what we're talking about. You've got to understand as minorities and all the stuff that's going on in this country with mass incarceration, right? The drug trade, uh, fucking poverty, all this stuff, right? You go all across the world, all across the United States in particular, poor communities dominated by people of color, right? Whatever it is, that's what it is, right? I go to Detroit, take me to your poorest part of town, black and brown people. Newark, black and brown people. Texas, black and brown people, okay? This is what it is. Now, our best and brightest that we say, right, go to these universities. Might be the first time they ever graduate. First one in their family to go to college and graduate, you know, they go to, some even go to elite schools, the Harvard, the Yales, they go to, to Morehouse, some might go to HBCU, you know, the Morehouse, the Howard, or they come from the Naval Academy, whatever. Then we send them into the environment, right? Now, mind you, it took a long time to build their confidence up. And within six months, we destroy it because we set them up for failure. And then they never recover. You have black officers that have mentally never recovered from the feelings I've talked about in the last podcast episode because yeah. they got rolled over and over and over again until the point the Marine Corps tells them they're not fit to lead, right? They're embarrassed about it. You know, yeah. family members are all excited about them going and becoming officers. Guess what? They couldn't cut it. Yeah. They didn't make it. Now, it's yeah. easy to look at those black officers and say, hey, you weren't qualified. But then we got to look and ask ourselves, Marine Corps standard-wise, what did we do to set them up for failure? Because I know as an infantry officer, if I had a Marine fall out of a hike, my commander was like, hey, what did you do to set him up? Have you been PTing him? Have you been doing all these things? And so I think there's this perception that like these institutions are exhausting their resources to make sure these candidates make it through these programs. And it's a fucking lie because it's not happening. Yeah. I'm telling you for a fact, it is not happening. There is no way black officers should show up to this environment without already qualifying, you know, without knowing how to set their pack up or not knowing all this stuff. And people say, okay, well, they should know better because they're joining Marines. They don't know, you know, because it's not our culture. That's right. So to expect them to show up to this environment and already, well, they should have figured it out, blah, blah, blah. No, man, look, it ain't about sending black officers into this environment to survive. Yeah. Are they going to go there and they're going to thrive? Because it is a very public environment. You cannot hide. The minute you enter the military, you are put against your peers from day one. And what are we doing to make sure that these minority candidates we're sending in the harm's way mm-hmm. are the best prepared so that way when they get out there and they lead the enlisted ranks, which has a high population 
of black and brown people, they deserve to have qualified, trained, confident officers in front of them. And if yep. we're not setting them up for that, we are yep. failing the Marines, we're failing this country, and we're failing our institutions in my rank. You're right. And, and every time a black officer or a female or an Asian officer fails, right, it just reinforces this perception in the Marine Corps that exists, both amongst whites and people of color, that people of color can't cut it. And, but it's, and so we can't afford to let them fail because it's just reinforcing. Now we're in a vicious cycle. The, and a lot, of, a lot of my white friends will talk about, oh, but what about the Ozarks and Appalachia? Those, you know, have you read, have you read, uh, damn, I already forgot the name of the book. Uh, anyway, it, uh, I'll come to me later, but what about those white people from the Ozarks, right? They're dirt poor too. The system has left them out too. Absolutely, 100%. But they haven't been blocked at the door because of their color. Yeah. Period, right? They, they, they don't have to take, do a poll tax to go vote. Right. There's not these bi there's not these systemic biases and, and policies in place to prevent them from getting in the door. Yes, they're in poverty. So once you're in poverty, it's very hard to get out of that poverty. But it isn't because of the color of your skin. Right. It's not it's not your fault. Yeah. Right. And so it's very, it's so it's so unfair to compare um, the 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 suffering that poor white people have. It's terrible, of course, but it's not based on the color of their skin. So that that's one point I'd like to make. Um, the other, you're right about the leadership, right? So the Marine Corps leaders take care of their people. And we feel personally responsible to set up our people for success, right? Yet, whenever I criticize the institution for not setting its people up for success, a lot of the pushback I get is, hey, it's the Marine Corps. You do what you're told. You just figure it out. You suck it up. But that's not how we lead as leaders. So why, why can't the Marine Corps be a leader and lead like we, it expects its leaders to do on a personal level? It's so simple. So I, I also believe that Maybe the Marine Corps doesn't want um, black generals and female generals because uh, in 1993, I talk about my article, um, then Commandant Mundy and Assistant Commandant Walt Boomer, they, they, met, they talked about exactly the same thing I did, that the bottom third tended to be black, that the bottom third um, didn't want to do combat arms. Uh, and then Walt Boomer, General Boomer said, hey, and we think it's a socioeconomic background is causing this because they don't know how to land that. Right. I don't remember that conversation at all. It was only in writing my article that I found that again. Somebody pointed it out. So it was it was talked about in 1993 by the two top generals in the Marine Corps. Yet it's only gotten worse when you look at the st statistics of black officers in the rank of field grade and above. I'll tell you something. Um, you know, as I look at a lot of the success I have now. I view my decisions. I'm like Floyd Mayweather, right? It's not that I'm like the greatest in the world at the stuff I do. Well, I'm pretty good at boxing. I'm pretty good at boxing. I'm going to take that back. Yeah, but three-time NCAA champion, I'll say you are. I pick fights that I know I have a 60 or 70% chance of winning. Just mm -hmm. straight up, you know? If I go into a room and I look around that room and I don't see anybody that looks like me, right? That lets me know that I can make it here, whether this is a job or a college or something. But I know that the percentage is very low because they don't have a high success rate. And you know what I do? I don't go to that place. I go yeah. somewhere else. I see a lot, a couple more people, different shades of black and brown. I'm like, okay, this is cool. You know, there's something about this culture here that we can succeed in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I end up, I end up going down that pathway, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's something like the, the colonel, uh, the, whoever it was, the army guy that wrote the rebuttal to your article, that is a very privileged thing to say. And what? I think it's also a mistake because... We have time now, post-civil rights, 
right? To post to the Civil Rights Act to understand, hey, there's still people that get off being the only one in the room. Mm-hmm. I'm the first black this. I'm the first this. I'm the first that, right? Mm-hmm. But for every one of us, how many do we leave in the dust? Mm-hmm. You know? And if you are measuring your success rate on one black officer kicking ass, but you got a hundred black officers ranked at the bottom three, at the bottom third at TBS, what does that say? What we're talking about is we don't want one. We want 40, right? Let's get 40 successful kicking ass. Maybe we leave, you know, 30 at the bottom struggling and then another 30 mid there. But it can't be this sense of like all across the board, you know, ranked low. I'm telling y'all, you do the research on this stuff. You do the research on this stuff. Look at the number of minority officers, what they're ranked amongst their peers collectively as a group, not just at TBS, in the battalions, in the battalions, right? You start to to look at that scores, all this kind of stuff, right? I'm telling you that stuff is deep. It is is deep. It's hidden in in plain sight is what it's called. You're right. And the fact that, uh, you know, the leadership grade counts so much um, at the basic school in your, in your, in your lineal standing it, and it's and it's so subjective. It's the young captain, SPC, the staff platoon commander, making that call, right? When I look back at my age, who I was as an SPC, I was just out of being a lieutenant. I had one tour in the fleet as a lieutenant. Then I come back and I'm a brand new captain, never been a company commander, right? So basically, I'm still a lieutenant in my, in my experience level. And I'm making this lifelong decision about, about a person's worth and their leadership skill. And a lot of that was based on peer right. evaluation. Right. And those period they're they're college kids, basically. So I remember now I saw one case with a one of my best lieutenants was a female prior enlisted shit hot Marine. Right. In the first period valves. And she really helped me be a better leader. She taught me a lot about how to do things, too, as a, when I was a first time as an SPC. And our first period valves, I had her rank number three in a platoon in my head. The peers had a rank bottom three. Right. So. And all of them were males who said that. So I called a platoon meeting in front of her, in front of the whole platoon. I go, you know, this woman, in my mind, is number three in a platoon. Why do you have her ranked bottom third? Is she a buddy fucker? Is she lazy? Is she stupid? Is she a coward? You know, any of these things. Because I haven't seen it. So why would she be ranked number three? I said, I'm not going to fucking make you change anything. But I'm telling you, I think it's your bias. And I left. Well, the next period valves, she was ranked higher, right? But you need to call it out. So yeah, that's a great moment with my, you know. So I'm proud of that. But I have a hundred more stories where I didn't do shit like that. But the uh, the thing you said about um, you know, one shining example and 100 people left in the dust. If if I was a regimental commander and I had one great battalion or one great company or one great battalion commander and the rest of them sucked and were behind the standard, how would I be rated as a regimental commander? I'd be rated as shit. Because it doesn't matter just to have one good guy or one good unit. It's the whole thing, right? So why are we patting ourselves on the back? We meaning the Marine Corps and the institution, patting ourselves on the back because we have a few shining examples. It, as a whole, we're a wreck or a disaster. We have not improved at all in the past 30 years. I think, too, you know, again, this is what makes what we're saying more powerful because we've been there, right? I sent a Marine to Hearst Master Course, one of the best Marines in my platoon, he failed out of the course because that's a very hard course. Mm-hmm. He failed out, tying knots, whatever. Yeah. I got hammered by my company commander for sending him there and failing. Now, mind you, all of our sergeants failed. Not one made it through that course, yeah. right? But I got hammered by my company commander because 
Why did I send that Marine there and know he fell? So we're not asking anything else that's not held accountable. We're just saying that like, yo, our leaders, if we're going to hold this standard for the officers, right? Yeah. Why can't we hold the same standard for the black officers we're sending into these environments? And another yeah. thing we're going to say too is that I know it seems like we're bashing the Marine Corps, beating it up pretty good. Here's what you got to understand. A black, a black officer that chooses to go to the Marine Corps, you got to ask yourself, do they honestly want to fail? Do they honestly want to be at the bottom? You understand? Or do they want to go in there bright-eyed, hungry, ready to serve their country, ready to give their all? And I would argue that more often than not, they do. But over time, the challenges that they go up against in these environments degrades that. And you, yes. you're, you're ruining this, this pure, this, this God country core, yeah. right? And you're creating this sense of they don't even want to recommend people join, yeah. you know? So again, all we're talking about is like, yo, man, these kids come in with so much passion. They're bright eyed. They might not know how to tie knots in the field or pack in their pack. But let me tell you, they want to lead Marines. They really yeah. do. And we have an obligation to, to empower them. And so I just say that, too, because I know sometimes we start going at these institutions, people kind of shut their brains off and they don't want to hear anymore. But, hey, we're not criticizing because we want the institution overall to fail. We're right. criticizing because we want the institution to be better and live up to its values. That's right. I want the Marine Corps to do what it says. Right. Just like I want our, our, our country to do what the Constitution says. But we're still far short from that. The Marine Corps is capable of changing, but it just hasn't, uh, it just needs a force. So I talk about inertia. So inertia, you know, second law of therm, or not, uh, Newton's first law of motion, the law of inertia, you know, things in motion stay in motion until acted on by a great, great, a greater force, right? So that's what structural bias or institutional racism or, or racist policy is. It's inertia. And unless there's a greater force, it will, it will stay on that track. So like the, the commandant's letter, and I work for him, I, he's a good guy, I know him. His letter, though, is not the force that's needed to knock the current the inertia off track, you know, by saying, hey, I understand your heritage, but it's a little too divisive. That's not force. That's allowing inertia to continue. So we have to take a stand and, call, and really talk about what it is. Uh, another, another good saying I heard, this is in relation to women. Oh, women have come along so far, and they have. You know, and now when we see a woman at the head table, of an organization, we don't think it's weird, but we're not yet at the point where we think it's weird if there isn't a woman at the head table. Right. So we could say the same thing for minorities on African Americans, Asians, doesn't Hispanics doesn't matter. We still don't think it's weird if we don't see color at the head table. I just looked at the United States Naval Institute's uh, website because somebody is saying somebody pointed me that direction uh, for something else. But I was looking at its board of directors and its leadership and its staff. There's 48 or 40, almost 50 people there. Not one single person of color. Not one. Mm. Everyone is white. So imagine, you know, you when I mean, I get uncomfortable if I go in on Anacostia because the culture is so different from what I've grown up with, right? So if I hear rap music blaring and everybody looks different than me, I get nervous, right? Because I just don't understand it, right? So now imagine being a young black officer and you go into your first infantry battalion. Guess what's on the fucking TV all day long? Fox fucking news all day long. Everywhere you go, Fox News is on, right? That, that is culture shock. It's fucking culture shock, and you feel excluded. And it's not overt exclusion. It's just this constant messaging, the pictures on the wall, who've been commanders, the fact that Fox News is on all the time, that people feel comfortable bashing Obama in yeah. public and supporting Trump in public, yet those who don't even agree with that don't say anything. 
because and so this is this constant pressure of degrading you and eroding you to the point where you just feel excluded and don't want to be a part of it. Again, it's hidden in plain sight. I've I've walked to headquarters, Marine Corps at Camp Lejeune. It's I feel eerie in there because there's just no black people on the walls. Yep. You know, and if there is a black person on the wall, it is looks like the between the officer and list almost like subservient. You know, yeah, you right. have all the white enlisted officers, commanders, yep. whatever, and then you have you know. The staff and CO boards, black sergeant major or whatever. Like, where is the black commanders? You know what I mean? We don't get that. So you you don't walk through those hallways and say, like, that is an overt way of saying, like, you don't belong here. You know, unofficially. It might not be the whole, you know, we don't like your kind or anything like that. But I am telling you, when you are recruiting minority candidates, people of color, and you want to make them feel welcomed, yep. right? It's not, I'm not going to invite uh, a white person over my home and I've got fucking... Malcolm X up on the wall, Black yeah. Panther this, Black Panther that, you know, forget white people, that kind of stuff, yeah. because that, that's just not an inclusive environment. I'm not right. saying hide who you are, just don't be an asshole. And I think we've been, we're being an asshole. The Confederate flag thing is being an asshole. But then, but a lot of, you know, a lot of those commanders will put their arm around a Sergeant Major and go, I love, I, I love my Sergeant Major. And I believe they do. I really believe they do. But, you know, there's that saying, I forget where I read it. Uh, it might, might've been candy. It might, I can't, I can't it might've been coats, but there's a saying, uh, about Northern and Southern culture from a black person, African-Americans perspective. Right. And, and the saying is in the North, they don't care how high we get as long as we don't get too close. And in the South, they don't care how close we get as long as we don't get too high. And I think the Marine Corps is very much that Southern culture and that, you know, black, black officers or black Marines can get as close as they want to us. We love them, but they better not get too high. So they're not put in positions of policy changing, right? They're put in positions of reinforcing the commander, executing policy that's there, but not changing policy. And until we get people in power that can change policy, nothing's going to change. Real quickly, briefly, last week, you know, I released the episode, Always Faithful Part One. Just off the cuff, what were your initial reflections on that? And were there any trends that you heard me speak of that were common? Like, I didn't know when I went to Marine Corps that the, what the FAP was. Yeah. Right. Fapping is where they fucking basically you're a shit bag in their eyes and they don't want you in the unit. So they fap you out. And that's what happened to me. OK. Yep. So they're, they're a fleet assistance program and there's a bunch of these billets like an MWR, the uh, morale welfare recreation centers. You know, they need people to hand out basketballs or rifle range needs an OIC to run the range. Um, so there's there. I forget there's, there's in the thousands of billets that are not accounted for in Marine Corps structure. So we don't have the personnel to fill those billets, but those billets exist. So they, they find people. So usually they pick on the enlisted side to be somebody that's about, to, you know, they can't make the next deployment because their contract is ending. So they shit can them over to, to the gym to hand out basketballs. Right. Um, sometimes, it, sometimes they do that with officers too, but putting a brand new second Lieutenant with who has not had a chance to lead at all and sending them to the rifle range as a, in the fact the fleet assistance program billet is bullshit. When I was an, uh, as an SPC, I had, uh, I, was, I don't know, it was like my third or fourth platoon. I came back in the middle of the night uh, for something to do some paperwork. Everybody's in the field. And I had a voicemail from one of my old lieutenants who graduated the last class, a white lieutenant. And he said, uh, hey, sir, I just want to let you know, I'm, you know, I'm really fucking upset. I've been fapped to the rifle range. And I, you know, I'm tired. I'm already crazy half the time. The TBS wears you out. So I immediately emailed the commandant saying, this is bullshit. Why would a second lieutenant get... Uh, fact to the rifle range. At the time it was Krulak was a commandant. 
So I guess it made it past the screeners and Krulak actually read the email and said, I'll take care of it. And then uh, a few days later, I get a call from the lieutenant or an email from the lieutenant saying, hey, don't worry about what I said. Everything's good. I'm back with the, back with my unit. Um, but then I get a bunch of emails from the one MEF CG, three star, the first Marine Division CG, a two star, the regimental commander, a colonel, all the way down to the battalion commander going, hey, basically, hey, motherfucker, next time you, you've got a problem, you come to us. Don't go to the commandant. So that's part of the reason why I decided to go to Camp Lejeune after that tour, not to the West Coast. But no one did that for you. No one did that for you. So the, when, why is the institution, uh, institution allowing that anyway? That's not how you develop leaders. No way. So that, that's so fucked up that they send a second lieutenant to the rifle range. It's bullshit. It shouldn't happen to anybody. What is, why. is there, a, so you, but is there this like secret pathway that potentially minority officers could find themselves in that they don't even know that has already exist. Like it is there. They have a plan that like, you know, where they little things that they do with minority officers. Is that, is that safe to say, is there a pathway? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't believe it's a conspiracy. Not, not conspiracy, but I'm just saying, how do they handle the reason I bring this up? I was the third black officer to hold that billet. I was the third black infantry officer to hold that billet. Okay. And the reason I know that is because they're my frat brothers, yep. right? Now, we didn't cross at the same place, but they were my frat brothers. And when I found out, I was like, hmm, I talked to an old head, a colonel, black colonel, infantry officer. Mm-hmm. He told me that third platoon was common. This is what he said. Getting assigned third platoon was common. No, a lot of black officers, they were assigned third platoon. I don't know. I'm just, this could be a thing, okay? I'm just, I'm asking. I'm, I couldn't, I could be wrong, but... I know that uh, right now I know a lieutenant could end up in that pathway is what I'm yeah. getting at. So, you know, I, I, t- I told your story to um, a former commandant and, and the first thing, one of the things he said was, you know, what did that, did that lieutenant complain and say something? Well, you know, we, now that I'm older and I'm 51 and I'm, I don't, I'm not afraid to fucking stand up and get in someone's face about right and wrong, but I wasn't that way as a second lieutenant. I wasn't that way at all. So no second lieutenant is going to go against the institution, right? Much less one that's been, had, its, had endured what you endured and had already lost so much confidence, self-dignity by the time that happened to you. But you did speak up, which speaks volumes about you and your courage. And then the answer was nothing, right? So the one time you did speak up, no, the institution did nothing. So why would you have trust at all? So I, don't, I think it's, it's the the bias that people have, right? So there's a colonel right now who's active duty, black colonel, and his, he, he's a year older than me. He joined the Marine Corps one year ahead of me, right? So this is now, he checked into his unit in 1991 after IOC. I checked into my unit in 1992 after IOC. But he, uh, he checked in with uh, two white lieutenants, so there's three of them together. Um, and the captain talks to the two white lieutenants one at a time first, and then he calls in this black officer last, right? And then he told the black officer, this is 1991, the black officer's still in, hey, you will always be ranked third amongst your peers. And this, my friend said, why? And he said, because I don't believe that African-Americans or black officers have the intellect to be good leaders, right? That's what he said out loud. I mean, it's shocking that anybody would say that out loud. I, I know people think that, but to fucking say it out loud and feel secure in saying that and, have, and know that there's not going to be any re- repercussions is mind-blowing. Now, my friend told his other two lieutenant buddies who checked in with what had happened. I'm also very good friends with one of those guys. 
And someday I'm going to ask him, you know, why didn't you say anything? Well, I know I didn't because he's a second lieutenant. And, and why would he buck the system then? It's, it's hard to ask somebody to fall on the sword that young. Um, so that, but, you know, the guy I've been talking to, the, the, the former commandant, he also says, well, you know, that's 27 years ago or 28 years ago or 30 years ago. That shit's old. But it's not old because, you know, the comment that that SPC or that instructor made to you on the sand table exercise about, hey, it's not drive-by shit. It's not ghetto shit. I mean, it's happening now, right? You're a good friend who introduced me to you. He told me a story from his IOC experience. And there's, a, you know, over 100 officers in the class. There's only two black officers in his class and the rest are white or Hispanic. And uh, two instructors are up there. And one of the instructors says, hey, someday you're going to be able to go down range and kill some sand niggers. The whole class looks at the two black officers like silence. The other captain said nothing. And that, the first captain who said it, I mean, what, how, how does he feel so secure to be able to say that out loud, right? Then not one white officer spoke up on the behalf of that, those black lieutenants. Not one. I've been guilty of doing the same thing. And I can tell that story later. Right. But then now that, that captain at the end of IOC, they're having their celebration or party or whatever, that same black or that same white as the captain instructor walks up to the Lieutenant who introduced me to you and says, Hey, you know, you guys don't normally make good grunts, but you're an exception. I want to shake your hand. Man, fuck that guy. Dude, that, that guy, guy is now is a RSCO, right? So he is, uh, 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 has command as a major. Only the best officers get selected for that. They have to go through a board process. If you're successful in that tour, you're going to get battalion command. So he's a player. And that guy is a player right now. He's going to pick up battalion command. No shit. Uh, unless he really punts it in the stand as a recruiting guy. But he said that. And his peer was there. Another captain. He's in the Marine Corps too. Is he going to say, is he going to stop another incident like that? Probably not. So it's everywhere. It's constant. So we allow it to happen. Why, why don't we tell people to turn off Fox news? I don't know. I don't understand because so that, that is why you ended up where you ended up because people don't get it. They don't, they, they, they're afraid to step up and take a stand against the institution. Just like I was when I was a second lieutenant. My battalion commander, my first battalion commander called the, uh, I had the, I was a half Asian and I had one other Asian lieutenant in the whole battalion. And uh, my, my, uh, my battalion commander from South Carolina with a big old Southern accent would call him Yakisoba. That was his nickname, right? I didn't fucking say anything. That guy was called Yakisoba by everybody, right? And he's my generation. It's, it's, it, it's everywhere, but no one said anything. So my second battalion commander, while well, still a lieutenant, so the first battalion commander leaves, a new battalion commander comes in. I didn't like him because he was very different. He was too polished. I didn't trust him very much. I just didn't like him. And I generally have a problem with authority anyway. But we were all on a jog. He took all lieutenants out for a run before we went on UDP to Okinawa a couple, a couple weeks prior. So every lieutenant in the battalion were all jogging. The Japanese American officers were there with us. I'm there. Everybody else, there's a couple black guys. Everybody else is white, all infantry, right? So we're running, 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 and then we stop and talk about shit. Well, he stopped at Marston Pavilion there at Camp Lejeune, and he gathers us around, and he starts talking to us about Okinawa. He's a battalion commander now. And he's saying, Jap this, and the Jap cops, and the Jap this, and it was Jap, he must have said Jap 30 fucking times, right? Now, had it been my first battalion commander, I probably wouldn't have said anything because he liked me, right? 
But this battalion commander knows like oil and water, our personality. <laughs> so yep. and I like, oh, well, now I have a righteous thing. I go get in his face. So I went up to him right before we gathered to continue our run. I said, hey, sir, if anybody ever said jab around my mother, I'd fucking kill him. And then I got back in formation and ran. Well, I was ranked, you know, 20 of 20 lieutenants by him as a reserve, as a review, reviewing officer. But the point is like, no, no white officer said shit. And I had a full Japanese American lieutenant brother right there. Right. And then, and I, I said something and then I get punished on my reviewing officer comments from him. That guy ends up being a three-star general, right? In, and there's only 15 three-stars in the Marine Corps. So when they're picking from, for the commandant, you know they're going to be a grunt, with one exception where we had an aviator. So of those 15 three-stars, how many are grunts? So now the pool of who's going to be commandant is very small. But that former battalion commander of mine was a three-star grunt general. So that means he was in the pool for commandant. And when I told this story to, you know, another former commandant about it, he goes, well, that guy's probably changed now. I don't give a fuck if he's changed because at the time he was 41 years old and he could have forced me to get out based on that, you know, that, that experience. And he, and then he made all those other lieutenants that were in the battalion think it's okay. So it doesn't matter that he may or may not have changed now. I don't give a shit. He said it as a 41 year old battalion commander and, and he, and he felt secure in saying that. That means our institution allows that. So when you had your little, your little, uh, your little uh, test there, when you guys checked into your unit, right? I know the guy who gave it to you. We, he's a couple years behind me. We're teachers at the basic school together. I had nothing wrong, no problem with him. But he ends up being an IOC instructor. So I, now I already know where his mentality is, right? And that test he did to you, instead of using it to, to f- see where you're weak and, and then want to develop you, they use it as a weeding out process. Right now, based on all the stuff we talked about that occurs prior to TBS and not TBS, well, who the fuck do you think is going to do bad on that test? Right? It's going to be the minority officer, the black officer. And so if you're not using it to develop the leaders and are using it instead to figure out who they're going to shit can the rifle range, it's going to be a black guy. That's why you ended up there. That's why it happened to the other two guys, too. It's 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 this institutional bias and policy that sets you up for failure. That's how you ended up at the rifle range. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, and the big thing when it happened afterwards was that like the Marine Corps, I was told the Marine Corps test was like TBS and IOC. I was told that, that the, when you graduated IOC, my the, the commander said I had absolute confidence in your ability yes. to lead Marines. Yep. You know, because I'll tell you too, I was in part of a group of officers that did the night patrol at Mount, mm-hmm. which is like the hardest one. Mm-hmm. Freaking three of us, I, I don't know, of the four of us that led that mission, two got rolled, two got dropped. Yeah. You know, so I think that was like your proven moment. Yeah. You know, I did the night raid at yeah. Mount in front of my peers. And after that mission, the commander looked at me, the my instructor, as whatever he was, looked yeah. at me and said, I have absolute confidence in your ability to lead Marines. So that's what I was leaving with based off of that judgment, you know? And I got told, yeah, I got told when I graduated IOC, your Marines are going to love you. You're going to do great. Boom. And then I ran into that. You know, I was not, I I don't know, man. It's just freaking. Because, but remember what I said, I felt, remember what I thought about my black peer as when I was at IOC as a student, I went through the winter course, just like you, you know, the guy was a goddamn clusterfuck. It's not his fault. But being clicky and, and having to pick a side and want to be part of the culture and accepted, 
No, I isolated the guy. I'm fucking, I, I'm, a, I'm a guilty too. But it wasn't his fault. He was set up for failure. So he did poorly at IOC. And then he later came back as an SPC at TBS as an instructor. And I was there too. And I, I still looked down on that guy I did at the time. And then, and then uh, like I said, every black officer I've ever met, I wondered, is, it, is he a quota as my, due to my experience of being an SPC and doing MRS assignments? So if I think that way or thought that way, of course your battalion commander and your company commander are looking at you too and wondering, are you a quota? Do you really have it? Right? So then they, and then they test you and guess what? You fulfilled their preconceived notions of what a black officer is capable of doing, but it's not because of you personally and your intellect or your will. It's because the institution had failed you all the way up to that point. Yeah. And that's the, that's, you know, and you fight against it so long, you know, again, because we internalize these things, you know, but we didn't know that we were in a pathway where you were set up for failure from the very beginning, yep. you know, and it's kind of hard to accept that because we want to say like, no, but I did this. I did that. It's my fault. You know, it's I'm the one I failed, you know, but then when it's all relative and you look back and you're like, yo, what you mean? There's a graveyard of black lieutenants. Yeah. You know? Yep. Damn, I didn't even realize, you yeah. know? And it's not until you get older and you're moved. So to the people out there that say, well, why didn't you speak up? We are fucking second lieutenants in the yep. infantry. Yep. Do you, you, it's different. I'm just letting you know it's different. It ain't the Naval Academy. You're not walking around up to colonels. Hey, what's up, sir? Mm. It doesn't work like that, yep. right? You got no, no- You're even afraid of your first platoon <laughs> yeah. sergeant who's, you know, by rank lower than yeah, you. Yeah, you got no power, right? Yep. And guess what? Another thing, too, let's be honest with ourselves. If you're a struggling, low performing, coming in with some issues, now you're complaining about something that was done to you. Are you going to really take what he says seriously? Are you going to look at him and say, oh, he's just doing that because he's a dirtbag or he's this. So you're pigeonholed. Right. Know what you do? You eat it. That's Mm. what you do. And you Mm. eat it alone Mm. away from your friends and family because Mm. they can't relate anyway. Right. And just like, and I'm not talking it to like trying to get outrageous out here, but what happened if I didn't run into my battalion commander on a random beach? Exactly. You know, what if I was suicidal in top cell? What if I was weak minded during that time? Yep. You know, alone by myself. Yep. Yep. Right. What happens then? So again, there's all this stuff, but it had the battalion commander not ran to me on a beach. I might've never existed to be quite frank. And, but what's, what's sad is had that not happened and had you uh, hadn't had in a moment of weakness, you decided, you know, you're not worthy of anything. And let's say you did try to kill yourself or kill yourself. I guarantee you that the, the battalion commander that sent you there and the company commander that sent you there, they would say, Hey, my door is open. He could have come to me. That's what they all fucking say. Right. But you're, no one believes that your door is open. Right? I mean, I just got an argument with a couple of years ago with my daughter's counselor when she first moved high schools. And she was having a hard time. And the counselor said, I've told her my door is open. I'm going, what fucking teenager goes and trusts an adult just because they say their door is open? You got to earn that shit, right? You got to pick at it. And the first time you ask them questions, they're not going to answer. You got to keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Then they'll believe you actually have a door, a door that's open, right? But the way they treated you by not, I mean, fuck, the way you were told you're going to ref range, the way you're escorted like you're a criminal over there to check in. And then no one ever checked on you once. Why the fuck would you believe the door was open? The door was not open. It was not open. And people say that. Yeah, well, they should come talk to me. Listen, I'm a black guy in Newark. You know what? I have to show up to the gym every single day for six months. And then a kid says, 
hey, Coach Mike, I want to talk. That's right. <laughs> you know why? Because he sees me. That's he knows me. He sees me. You know, he feels comfortable. You can't walk into these people and That's just right. say, hey, just, hey, come on, let's go, come on over, let's go for a walk and talk to me about what it's like to be a black man and the challenges mm-hmm. you're facing. Mm-hmm. You know, you really think they're going to open up to you about that stuff? It's not happening. They're no. going to smile. They, they're going to nod. Maybe on my 20th attempt, it might, yeah. you might crack it. And uh, until you publicly state, state where you stand, no one's going to talk to you. So like, just like me, as progressive and liberal and open-minded as I like to believe I am, yeah. my black lieutenants that are still friends to me this day did not tell me what their experiences were like until I published that article. That's what it took. I will tell you too, and I think I told you this on the phone, right? So we're criticizing, again, I like to create empathy with this show, Mm -hmm. okay? So I know we're criticizing leaders and their representation of black leadership at the top. I will tell you, I used to, I asked a black Marine, the longest time I thought, you know, what did the black Marines look at us as black officers and say, hey, is he, not one of us, but yeah, I'm going to say one of us. Is he, you know, is he down for the cause? You know what I'm saying? Does he think he's better than us, right? I always thought the measuring stick for that was who we brought to the Marine Corps ball. Yeah, yeah. You know, just being quite frank. I'll be honest, interracial dating is a big thing. Yeah. You know, that's their, me- that's what I thought their measuring stick yeah. was. Who your date was that you brought to the Marine Corps ball. Right. You know what I found out it was? Our squad leaders. That's right. Fucking our squad leaders. Here I am worried about the Marine Corps ball and the black Marines are looking at me saying, is he going to put a black squad leader? That's right. You know, that's the, that's what you're putting us into. That's what we're going into. And you know how many black, you know how many black Marines I had in my platoon? One. Yep. (laughs) I failed that test myself. Yeah. And as I had, I had two, I had uh, my, when I was a, when I was a weapons platoon commander, so I was a first lieutenant. I had uh, my platoon sergeant left. I can't remember why. And I could move up one of my two sergeants to be that platoon sergeant, right? So one guy is a old, really older uh, white 0351. They weren't promoting um, assault men for shit. So he was a sergeant, even though he'd been in like 15, 20 years. Old as shit, drank tons of booze all the time, had a case of beer. But he'd always play the game, come into me. Hey, sir, how you doing? Good morning. And, and talk to me a lot. And, and the other one, the other sergeant, was my mortar section leader. And his mortarmen loved him. And mortarmen are, are an interesting group of guys. They're this, yeah. you, usually ISGT of all the grunts. They're very independent. Um, they fucking mouth off in a way I like. They push back. And they were, you know, all different colors. But they loved this black section leader, right? And that the black section leader never really talked to me much. I think he was seeing what – he was evaluating me, like you said. Seeing which way I was going to go. But the, the pressure I felt is never spoken. I felt tremendous pressure to pick the white guy. And in my and I know that the the my black sergeant was technically better, but he didn't talk to me much. It, I was more comfortable with the white guy. I was resisting being a minority. I wanted to be part of the white culture. And the whole unit there just seemed pressure to pick the white guy. And I fucking folded and I picked the white guy. And I remember when I told the two sergeants who I just what I decided the my black sergeant's face i mean it's so i'm ashamed to think about his look that he gave me right just so disappointed and nope there's another one this is the way he looked at me just like i thought another one i ran into him about 10 years ago he's a mat he was a master gunnery sergeant and i told him what i had done and what i'd felt how much shame i felt i'm glad i got to tell him to his face i'm not asking for forgiveness um from him but 
it's just terrible what the institution makes you do, right? The one one thing I hear from a lot of my white friends too is, well, I didn't get to swim in a pool, you know, or I didn't wasn't in Boy Scouts, but it, it's not it's not any one thing. It's like the combination of all those things, right? Or I've heard, hey, I, you know, I've known plenty of good old boy officers that talk with a southern accent. Yes, he's a good old boy. He's white. We accept that kind of accent, but we don't expect accept inner city um, ebonics or jive or whatever you want to call it. The black language is not accepted, but good old boy language is. So it's it's just the combination of all those things and the fact that Fox News is on all the time, all that built together, it just crushes you down in a way that a white person cannot understand, even if they have never done land nav or the pool. Yeah. And think about what you just said, too. Now I'm the black officer in there with Fox News playing. What kind yeah. of environment with my platoon sergeant that's got a Confederate flag tattoo, yep. you know, hanging? What do you think that young black Marine from Detroit is thinking about me? Yeah. He's thinking I'm a non-racist. Not that I'm an anti-racist, that I'm a non-racist, that I see, I see it, that I don't say anything. He doesn't think I'm going to have his back, you know, when he yeah. has a situation, That's you know? Right. And we're getting viewed through a lens. Again, this thing is very complicated. Yeah. Black enlisted are looking at the black officers, you know, to do right by them. Yeah. And we don't even got the tools to do so. And I'm not saying just make a black squad leader just because, you know, it's going to go, it's going to tie into what we're going to wrap up here. But we need to have ways to train them up, get them ready and put them in positions, not where they can survive, where they thrive. Because I'll tell you, I have a frat brother, right? That has like, he's very high up in special ops in the Marine Corps. I'm going to say that he's that dude. Okay. He tells me that IOC is the hardest leadership school he's ever done. Of all the schools he's done, he's done them all. Dive, jump, fucking ranger, all that kind of stuff. IOC is the hardest. I did it in the winter, right? He did it in the winter, okay? You know how hard it is to go through that stuff and still not be accepted by your tribe? Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? To go through all that sacrifice, do all that kind of stuff, and they still look at you and say, you're not really one of us, you know? Or you can be the most qualified like he is, where he did really well there and he goes and he briefs people and they look at him and deep down are, is he there just because of quota right. or because he's black? You know, that kind of stuff, right? It takes away from the effort and the sacrifice we've done and it dilutes it, okay? So we have to change the culture, right? By showing too that we have pathways to make sure without reasonable doubt that these guys are thrive. They can't just survive. They have to yeah. thrive and they have to kick ass. And it could be no question, which is why I'm gonna wrap us up with, where do we go from here? I mean, you're gonna talk about this. This is my first time talking about this. The officer that got on with you, that introduced us, okay? I wrote after my experience and I was leaving the Marine Corps my last year, I put out a thing called the Carney Initiative, mm-hmm. right? Where I wrote up a, a basic frago for the Carney Initiative, which mm-hmm. was a pathway to train and develop Black infantry officers, mm-hmm. right? Getting them introduced to shooting, backpacking, yep. Yep. Uh, height, like everything, right? Getting used to the outdoors yep. and Marine Corps culture well mm-hmm. before they show up to OCS, TBS, IOC. Because mm-hmm. guess what? Any entry-level school for Marine Corps officers, you are getting evaluated. So That's when right. that clock starts, boom. They got to be ready to go. They can't be learning how to shoot, hike, and all this kind of stuff under the stress of the Marine Corps. You ever tried to learn how to shoot getting yelled at by a drill instructor? In the winter, 
I mean, we didn't have instructors at IOC, but I'm saying for those guys that go through OCS, right? You you try to load magazines in the, when you can't even feel your hand, you know, or switch off the safety on your rifle, yeah. you know, when you're in the snow at like yeah. freaking, you know, one degrees. Yeah. Like in these in moments, in these high stress moments, you can't be figuring it out then. No. But a lot of, you know, like I said, a lot of my white friends will say, well, I felt that way too. But it's it's the uh, it's the culture shock, and it have you, I and I never experienced culture shock uh, until I went to Japan. I, I was I raised there a little bit, but immersed in the Japanese, uh, their National Institute of Defense, their top level school as a colonel. That's culture shock because it's I'm immersed in their culture. It was a culture shock when I was a uh, advisor in Iraq, living with Iraqi army in an Iraqi village. That's complete culture shock. You're out of your element completely, and it just drains you, right? So the fact that you're just out of your element alone, it, it, it exacerbates all the difficulties you have to with a factor that other people don't understand. Uh, so where do we go from here? I want to do, I, I'm planning, I'm working on it. I mean, we haven't read a business plan or anything, but what I really want to do is what you're talking about. And I'm discussing it with a couple of my close friends um, on how to do this. And we want to expand it actually into inner city um, disadvantaged kids starting like third grade really early and do summer camps, but also be able to prep anybody for their military experience too. And, and to teach them how to tactically plan and how to brief and how to write. And I won't even look at, I want to see their writing. I want to uh, talk to them about racial politics and gender politics in the Marine Corps. So they go in armed and, and prepared, like, just like you say, I think that's the next step. I think the other critical step is to find a white champion because you know, is if you're a, a person of color or you're a female or woman, and you keep complaining, that's all that they're going to see is that you're complaining. We need a white champion who's been there and done that to speak on the behalf of women and minority officers and Marines in general. I'm, I'm just going to put out there, I know very talented white officers, mentees of mine from the Naval Cabin that still reach out to me. You know, um, some of them are at, one is at Harvard Business School right now. I know I could go to him and say, hey, we need 20 qualified black officers to thrive at these schools. Yep. He would figure it out. I'm yep. telling you, he would figure it. That's a Marine. He would figure it out. You can't tell me that these higher ups can't. Maybe they don't want to. I don't know. No. They say, I mean, you know who our officer selection officers are, right? Majority of them are white and they go into HBCUs, try to recruit um, young black college students to be Marine officers, but it's coming from a white guy. Meanwhile, the army, I learned this from a guy, uh, a Navy officer who rebutted my article. He thought I was, I was, starting way too late with my solution. And he felt the Marine Corps just screws up with their recruiting. He's right. When you look at the Navy and the Army, they do much better at, at representing those who are trying to, they're trying to recruit. And they have people that look like them and understand the culture they come from and have empathy. Not even empathy, they lived it, right? So the Marine Corps is not doing that. So that's part of, that is part of the problem. Absolutely. Hey, I, I, I do want, well, since you put me on the air, if, Anybody who's going to the basic school, so let's say they're between OCS and PBS right now, and they have a couple weeks to kill, I will work with them one-on-one -on -one out of my house and prepare them just because I want to. I really, really want to. So anybody out there who needs help with anything in preparing for TBS, come to me. I got the time. I'll work with you. That's a great plug. Where can they contact you at? You can, my, my, my email is tjhobbs00 at gmail.com. Write me and I'll get back with you. Or you could find me on LinkedIn and message me. 
I will always get back to you and I'll make time. I'll work around your schedule. Anything you need, I'll prepare you. So y'all hear that? I know there's a lot of officers out there. We've got IOC, we've got IOC instructors, TBS instructors, lieutenants listening to this podcast. If you know of a black lieutenants that are struggling, people of color in general, right? That you want to improve, send them to the colonel. Let them work with them. Make that introduction. Hell, message me and I'll make the introduction. Okay. This is the opposite of being reactive. This is being proactive. All right. And getting above this stuff, getting ahead of this stuff. Right. If you are having recruiting a mentee that you want to push down this pathway, introduce them to the colonel. Right. He's stepping up. He's raising his hand. He's saying, hey, I want to help. I'm coming up with a solution. Let's do it. And let's rally around this stuff. All right. Sir, again, I just want to appreciate you, one, for speaking up, writing that article, two, talking to me and coming on this platform and just really just, you know, being a champion for the stuff we're talking about because everybody talks about leadership, leadership, leadership. Yeah, have you put yourself in the firing line before? Writing an article like that, you know, after so many years in a, in a I mean, you've sacrificed 20 years, 20 plus years to have people tell you you're not a Marine, <laughs> you know, to feel yeah. some kind of way that they don't want to talk to you about that, like, Let's be honest about leadership. It's more than just this, oh, I'm a thought leader, blah, blah, blah. No, man, leadership is putting yourself out there, you know, yeah, and really speaking up. And I appreciate yeah, you for doing that. that. On, on that pitch, too, for anybody that needs help, you know, I, did, I, I know how to teach. I'm a good grunt. I'm very good at my trade. Uh, and it's open to everybody. You know, it, you, I don't care what color you are, white guy, white female, anything. You need help, you come to me. But, of course, my heart of hearts, I want to help the disadvantaged. Um, and it's been proven and it's real that the disadvantaged are minorities as a whole, especially in the Marine Corps. So please come to me. Awesome. And thank sir. you, Mike, for everything you do. Awesome. Thank you. And I just want to appreciate everyone for just spending this time with us, allowing us to talk about these sensitive issues. Again, we're not trying to uh, put people against each other. We're just trying to be open and honest and, and share with you our perspectives so that you are more empowered out there as you try to develop solutions to this, because I know there's a lot of officers listening to this, this, this podcast recently, and uh, we want to help you out there. And uh, if you could do us a favor, be sure to subscribe and support this podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, Forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with this subject matter. If everyone who's listening to this could just forward this to one person, we'd greatly appreciate it. Also, you can go order some dope coffee at www.realdopecoffee.com. Again, badass e-commerce business started by Marine Corps combat veteran Mike Lloyd. We're actually in the midst of a fundraising round. We've raised about 45K of our 170K target, and we're super excited about this investment round, and we want to encourage all our friends and families to make an investment in us. You can invest for as little as $250, and if you don't want to invest, just go to the website and order some dope coffee. Help support us with sales. Also, you can donate to my brand, www.ironboundboxing.org. Every donation allows us to support free amateur boxing programs for youth and young adults in low-income communities. We believe boxing is wellness, and that's why we're providing free workouts for these communities. Also, we have a for-profit arm giving free, giving virtual boxing classes and on-site classes to corporate clients. We're running upwards of 15 classes a week right now, and you can... If you're part of a remote team looking for some fun employee engagement, we'd love to host a class for you. Again, we can use these proceeds to support our nonprofit mission. Anyone out there, feel free to message me or the colonel on LinkedIn. 
You can shoot me an email at mike at weareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mike Lloyd from Dope Coffee. Love you, brother, and appreciate you for always pushing me and the team at the Gifted Sounds Network for allowing us to host this podcast. Until the next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. And also, I will get you part two of the Always Faithful series. This was supposed to be part two, but I need a little bit more time as I revisit a, a, a challenging past like many of us have. But I promise you, I will get you part two and uh, continue with my Marine Corps journey. So again, until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, now don't that feel nice, man? I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that clean, black man, we the original man.